Hey everyone, before this episode starts, we wanted to acknowledge that this episode was recorded before the news of George Floyd's death and the ensuing protests, which is why it's not mentioned anywhere throughout the recording. Around the time we planned to release it, we decided it felt inappropriate to be promoting it since there were much more important conversations happening on social media. We wanted to let you know that we completely support the Black Lives Matter movement and we're doing our best to research for what we can do to be effective allies and contribute to the anti-racist cause. Thanks for listening to our announcement. Now here's our episode. Welcome to First the Thing. The beginning of a conversation. Today we're going to talk about the canon. Yes, what what makes up a canon? Um, is it important? And all fun stuff like that. <laughs> fun stuff. But before we get into it, we sa- I think we said in an earlier episode that we were going to talk about what we're watching right now. I don't know if you wanted to do oh, that Oh, I quickly. forgot about that. Um, I'm currently watching a Korean drama. Oh, my voice. Oh, whoa. <laughs> <clears throat> um, a Korean drama that's on Netflix called Because This Is My First Life. I just started watching the first episode today. And mm-hmm. my mom had watched it like a year ago or something. And it's like, it's a romance about these two people who decide to get married for financial benefit, but then they start falling in love. It's just one of those kinds Ooh. of um, those dramas. But I don't know, like it. For some reason, the the position of the main character right now, she's 30 and she hasn't um, been in love yet. And she's kind of like the second favorite child in her family. And she feels like she hasn't accomplished anything in her 30 years of life. And I'm feeling that same way at age 22. And so it's interesting just to think that like, oh, will I get to that position? Will I be in that position? And maybe it's kind of inspiring me to, (laughs) to make movements in my life now. But also just remind me that life doesn't end at age 30 or 40 and it keeps going no matter what i was gonna say that'd be comforting yeah it is comforting in a sense and so i'm excited to see where the drama goes it's the the thing with k-dramas is that they last like an hour long per episode so it's like almost like watching a a full movie so you have to commit yourself (laughs) right right that is lengthy yeah but yeah what are you watching um i've been watching well we've we just finished the second season of uh, Big Little Lies um, because we got Crave. We can watch HBO shows now, so we're yes. taking advantage of that. So we actually we just finished watching Barry too. There are two seasons so far, um, which we really really liked. It's like Bill Hader and <laughs> jo- Joe and I are obsessed with him, and it's just like one of those things where like I'm not even a TV writer and I probably will never be (laughs) (laughs) but like it's one of those things where I'm like jealous that they made it you know it's it's so well done and it's like very dark and it raises a lot of interesting questions but it's also so funny like so deeply funny (laughs) like I don't know it's it's very well made but then HBO like Big Little Lies is just like a lot of kind of intrigue and a lot of like drama and stuff like that but very very well acted um interesting so yeah some good stuff now we're kind of getting into killing eve so only watched two episodes so far but i'm excited about it i've been meaning to watch that but i don't know if like i want to get the crave subscription because i feel like i need to 
to hunker down and like be prepared to watch all of these tv shows yeah while I <laughs> you want to like that's a, that's a thing we're planning on canceling it soon because we wanted to just get the three 30 day free trial i don't know how long it's been but yeah that's probably why we've like watched so many in such a short period of time like so yeah. many episodes of things but anyway that's great enjoying <laughs> lots of good tv yes it's what we're, else we're is staying there to entertained. do right now <laughs> But yeah, I'm I'm glad that we had this kind of big topic this time because I kind of, in a way, I miss like the kind of like really analyzing things and talking about big concepts and stuff that I did in school. So this is good. <laughs> Missing that academic aspect of your life. Yeah. And it just made me think of, it just made me reflect on some things that I learned in school. So yeah. That's true. That's true. Um, yeah. So like we said before, the topic of today's episode is discussing the canon and what makes it so special but for those of you who don't know what a canon is or like what we're talking about um mm-hmm. miriam webster kindly gave us the definition <laughs> of webster's dictionary <laughs> defines <laughs> um, the definition standard would be a sanctioned or accepted group or body of related works i'm gonna read that again because i hated that um a sanctioned or accepted group or body of related works. Um, mm-hmm. So, do you want to talk about the canonization? Like the, the Yeah, so, I don't know. I thought it was interesting because as a Protestant, <laughs> I didn't know <laughs> about the whole aspect of canonization. Like, when I googled canonization to kind of do some preliminary research, most of what came up was religious stuff, like stuff from the Catholic Church. And I didn't know that that was what it's called when there's like a deceased person who becomes a saint, like mm-hmm. the process of them being admitted into sainthood is canonization, which I yeah. find really interesting because the canon, the way I think of it anyway, is like uh, the accepted uh, like list of works in art and culture that are considered to be above the rest kind of, and the ones that you mm-hmm. look to to kind of define certain eras or styles of writing or com- composition. Um, so yeah, that's really interesting that it has like a religious aspect to it. Like so that's where it comes from. Yeah, it's kind of like the holy grail of art and literature. Um, specifically, we have been taught in university and high school even um, like the Western canon and collection of arts and mm-hmm. literature and philosophy and all these different things um, versus like a more comprehensive collection of like world art unfortunately, Mm -hmm. because that's what is considered to be the highest standard among academia, in a sense. So we're specifically talking about more like Western pieces. Yes. Yeah, because that's kind of what we've mainly been taught Mm -hmm. in school. Did you want to talk about classic versus canon? (laughs) Um, I guess I can briefly mention that. Um, I don't know, for me, I realized that there were two differences when I was doing research for this episode. And so I, they were saying like, oh, what makes up class, what makes something a classic versus what makes something a canon. And the Wikipedia article that I was looking up was more focusing on like literature. And so they were saying how classic literature is considered like a book or work of art that is accepted as being exemplary or noteworthy. So it's like a standard of excellence, kind of like what a canon is, except, um, 
A canon is more a list of books or art that's considered to be the essential that you need. And so Harold Bloom is one of the major theorists or like writers who identified like what makes up or what is so distinct about the Western canon specifically. And he says the canon is necessary mainly because we don't have enough time to read everything that is out there in the world. And so these are mm-hmm. the select few that we must read. And I say that in quotes um, to get the most out of that field, to get the most out of that specific era that right. we're talking about or that you're studying. Um, and I think it's kind of in- important to note, like something can both be a classic and part of the canon, but they're mm-hmm. not, they're very similar concepts, but they're too, they're still distinct on their own. Right. right. That is important, I think, to, to um, make that distinction. Mm-hmm. And so the first thing we wanted to discuss kind of when we came up with this topic was like, who really creates the canon? Because from what both of us have noticed, obviously, um, what both of us have noticed uh, through our studying was that it's very much filled with artists, painters, sculptors, composers, writers who are mostly white and European, mm-hmm. which part of it is because it is a Western canon, but like that's what's considered the standard especially to be taught in the west yeah it's weird how it's kind of implied it's like one of those like uh eurocentrism things where it's kind of implied that it's the western canon without necessarily always explicitly saying that Mm -hmm. which is kind of like implying that it's the baseline you know what i mean like that the western canon that the white creators the right art white artists are like the standard somehow yeah, basically. And um, I found it interesting of, like, it, it took me a lot of research, or not that much research, but, like, I couldn't really find what specifically makes something, make a piece of art a part of the canon itself. But I found this encyclopedia article that was saying, to be chosen for a canon, it needs to be anthologized by one of the major presses, like Norton or Oxford. And so it has to be put into a collection, a book with a collection of other well-known art pieces to kind of be recognized as a standard to be upholded. It doesn't really give you a good idea of yeah. how something becomes a can like part of the canon. Yeah. But it just shows probably it's probably been in a lot of discussion with major academics of that time, of major people um in these schools of thought or and these publishing companies, um, in order for it to become well known and well-regarded it's it's weird though with that because it's like i still question who decided what would go into those anthologies and like what Mm -hmm. were their criteria how does that work i mean i was just thinking about it though and probably a lot of this kind of thinking and anthologizing came about in the enlightenment era when they wanted to start categorizing everything probably so maybe like what was considered really good then was what created the foundation for the the canon that we know today possibly well, maybe i don't know because it feels like throughout i mean maybe not at that specific time period like if we say for example the impressionists all of those painters Degas. um i was gonna say van Gogh, but he's i think pre-impressionist or is he post-impressionist he's post-impressionist yeah he's post-impressionist um Degas, Cezanne, monet monet um all those people they weren't considered very good artists of their time because they had such a Mm -hmm. different art style versus the one that was like socially acceptable and like artistically acceptable at that time but only posthumously did society or whoever um look at their paintings and go oh actually wait this is really good and really nice and like yeah much different 
than what we had previously, but it's considered a work of art. And so they were then put into the canon afterwards or then um, revered as like the great painters of the Impressionist era. And they created their own movement at that time. And so what really dictates, who dictates that? That's the thing to me, like how much time has to pass before something's considered like great before people realize and what are the specific things that bring it out is it just coming into the public eye and there's something innately important about it like what because I know that that can't be true I'm sure there's so many artists and composers and everything who have created works that are just as great as the ones that are included in the canon but they just maybe came at the wrong time or something I don't know or even just like there are artists who were famous at their time so it's not like you have to be defined by um, being poor and not being successful because I feel like Mozart in his like prime days his pieces of uh, art in his operas or his compositions in his operas did really well in the beginning mm-hmm. or but it's just his end didn't go so well for him <laughs> the end of his life didn't go so well for him yeah I think Mozart is the one I learned about him in school obviously and I think he might not have been him. It was definitely an Austrian composer, though, whose wife kind of was the one who, like, pushed his whole catalog after he died and made sure that it got remembered. So I think that there's often something, some sort of sense of promotion, maybe, of, like, keeping that that person alive. I don't know. It might not have been him. I I don't know. I found it interesting because... how is it that they came into the limelight after every after their death? Like, who was the one posting the legacy? It's a, it's a huge theme in um, Hamilton the musical, but mm. re- in reality, like, history is only made up of the stuff that we remember. So, how is it that they got pushed into the limelight at all if they weren't doing if they weren't successful? How do we know so much about their lives after they've died, years after um? when they start suddenly start becoming popular. Like I find it really interesting mm-hmm. when you when you hear uh tales recounted about Van Gogh's life and how much he struggled. But like how do people figure like find st- that stuff out? <laughs> yeah. I think most of his life is like a lot of letters that he wrote to his brother. Mm. Uh, my dad read his biography like <laughs> twice, so I I've, I've heard tidbits about him. But he wrote a lot of letters and I think diary entries or something like that. So I think that's where they got information about him, but you're right like it would be, it's a, I don't know, you have to know that there's something special about someone to go that in depth, because it must have been hard to find that kind of stuff. Yeah. And just like, you're lucky that all of that survived somehow. And part of the gripe, let's just take Hamilton, the musical, for example. Yeah. Um, Hamilton's wife, Eliza, they used to write, like a lot, the reason why they know a lot about Hamilton's life is because he would correspond through letters. And I think letters, I, like like you mentioned, were the main form of communication. So you're if you have those um, receipts, <laughs> if you have those correspondences, then you're able to kind of build a, a, an image of the thoughts that they had or the kind of person that they were based on the contents of those letters. But Mm-hmm. With Eliza, she started burning all of the letters that Hamilton sent her um, after she found out, spoiler alert, that Hamilton uh, cheated on her. Mm. So th- not much can be actually found about Eliza Hamilton because she did that. And so... Mm. <laughs> um, oh, that's such a bummer. So ha- so Lin-Manuel Miranda wrote a song called Burn, kind of like 
as to, as as the emotional um, highlight for Eliza's character in the musical, as well as kind of like to be to show his frustration that he can't find much on her character itself, so he yeah. kind of has to make up a lot. <laughs> um, interesting in that to sense. me about that kind of thing, though, is that someone still somehow found out that she was burning the like there's Mm -hmm. you still know that about her yeah so that's i don't know i guess maybe that's getting off topic and so the whole so the whole the the, i can't speak today i can't think of words um (laughs) so the conclusion of this tangent is that we appreciate historians and (laughs) anthropologists yeah it's kind of amazing (laughs) yeah but just the commitment and the i don't know like that's it's a lot of work compiling everything yeah um that a tangent aside oh we want to challenge the whole idea of the fact that these canons were mostly composed of uh artists or composers or writers who were mostly men um white men european men just because like we are women or i am a woman of color and so it's it kind of like sucks to only be reading from one kind of perspective it's interesting still Mm -hmm. it's invaluable to know from that one perspective but i think there would be so much more value to come from there's so much value that you can take from other cultures and from other um people other schools of thought other like perspectives that people have um yeah just because it comes in a different language or comes from a culture that you don't understand like i think there's so there's still like a valuable life perspective that you can take from Mm -hmm. and i feel like only teaching a certain canon that only is mostly white men from europe really kind of teaches the students that that's the like standard that's the most valuable art Mm -hmm. and that everything else is kind of an exception and like maybe even like exotic like you know yeah. what i mean by that you know yeah. that that uncomfortable word yeah. um and like i don't know like it's somehow less valuable i guess yeah it's it's an add-on to what is the main canon itself it's like like you were saying mm-hmm. before before we started recording um there is a canon for african history or for african art there is a canon for asian history as a whole and like we're just kind of reducing those places to countries i mean to continents um yeah yeah the the whole concept of world music just really bums me out yeah (laughs) yeah anyway and so it's just like they're bringing in more women to the canon now and more people of color into the canon now it's just why did it take so long Mm -hmm. um and it's just kind of sad that we, like, the people of their time, like, the women of their time didn't even get to be respected decades after they died. It's like, we have to kind of recognize them for what they were now in, today, in today's day and age. And it's great that we're doing yeah. that. But I, I just hope that moving forward, we'll be able to look less on... Because I also don't want to make it just about race and about uh, gender, but, like, yeah. look more about the contents of of a piece of work and be able mm-hmm. to judge its quality based on that. I mean, obviously you have to take everything else into consideration, but um, that we're more forgiving and more like accepting of other factors and other perspectives. Yes, I totally agree. <laughs> Do you want me to, I can, this is not going to be a smooth segue, but I can talk about, I was planning on talking about like my experience in school. Yeah, sure. Okay, so it's 
the way I feel like I set that up to be like some kind of juicy story or something, but <laughs> it's not. <laughs> it's just my experience, like interacting with the concept of of the Western canon and specifically about music because I was a music student and when you study music in university it's obviously mostly about like western art music or classical music um and I was a pop music student so that was interesting for me Mm -hmm. but I did take a lot of music history classes because I thought that I don't know that'd be useful I wanted to expand the boundaries of what I knew about music yeah Um, so I think in that way it was very valuable. But I did feel like I we were missing stuff. Like, I don't know, I just felt like we were learning a very standard set of composers and, and pieces and eras and stuff like that and, and places. Like, it was overwhelmingly white male European. Like, mm-hmm. there were barely... Even in the textbook, like, I looked through the textbook, the stuff about, like, obviously Bach is extremely influential and important, but he had, like so like pages upon pages about him <laughs> and then there would be like a tiny little thing about like Clara Schumann or whatever like it's just like so minuscule like they're just like little sections like oh fun fact there's a woman <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> but there what, were what? like I understand that there were a lot of I don't know how many active female composers there were before like the 20th century because it was just hard like they mm-hmm. they weren't able they didn't have the resources for that that couldn't be a viable career for them yeah like historically it just wasn't accepted (laughs) yeah and maybe if they maybe there were more composers than we know that were women and their Mm -hmm. works just didn't make it through time because people Mm -hmm. didn't think that it would needed to be preserved Mm -hmm. um but still i know that there are female composers that we just didn't talk about and like also like i said earlier like the just concept of world music or ethnomusicology like that's a totally separate thing from the standard music history um, courses, which I felt like, I felt like I was just missing a chunk of information. And I just don't like the idea of categorizing something just because it's not basically just because it's not created by white people into Mm. like a whole separate category. And I don't blame the professors. Like, I'm not saying that that's, that they're like racist for doing that. I think that's Mm -hmm. just the standard way. And that just needs to be altered. Like people need to take a second look at it. Yeah. I just wonder, in your textbook, um, when it was talking about Bach, did it talk about his life mostly? Or was it talking about, like, the contributions he made theoretically to the music and music history? I would say both. Um, Bach was interesting because he's one of those cases where he he was kind of like a lowly church guy. (laughs) He just (laughs) mostly composed for a church, I think. I can't remember all the details, but, and he had a ton of kids and he didn't have that much money and he, he composed like a ton of stuff. So there's so much work for people to reference Mm. when they talk about him. Um, But he was like, I guess he was interesting in that he was one of those people who didn't kind of get discovered. People didn't realize how impactful he was until later on and like how cool his music is and stuff. So I think it's, it's about his life and his work somewhat equally i guess hmm, interesting yeah because i was wondering if, yeah well is it just like only about his life and just talking about what it was because if you're talking about a music history class i would th- assume that you would mostly be focusing on the contributions that they made to the history of like composition and music theory itself mm-hmm. versus just like 
oh, this is the details of so-and-so's life. <laughs> yeah. No, I think it's kind of like, um, we kind of talked, to, we they approach it in a very era-oriented way. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like you start with, like, I think we started with medieval times and Ooh. then, like, renaissance. Like, it's very, like, general blocks of time. And mm-hmm. then, you know, you work our way up through, like, romantic, like, class, um, like, what's the word? The classical period. <laughs> and then, like, romanticism. And then it gets more vague. It's, like, nineteenth ce- end of 19th century. Then 20th <laughs> century slash modernism, question mark. Like, I don't know. Yeah. It gets very vague. But it's kind of like they introduce a period. And then they say, like, these are the important people of the the er- like that era and they go into some biographical information but then they talk about like their most important pieces i don't know i didn't do all of the readings but it's okay i'd never do my readings either <laughs> but yeah it was very interesting because i felt like i got like a cultural context and mm-hmm. like this is kind of what was going on in that period and this is how art was changing and these are the main people who were like doing the changing and or who were setting the status quo of that period so that it does teach you a lot and it's very interesting but it definitely I definitely started especially towards the end of my university career started to question the idea of these these rigid eras like my one Mm -hmm. prof said it really well when she was like um it's not like you have to remember it's not like set in stone like these eras aren't Someone didn't just wake up on January 1st in 1750 or whatever it was and say like, oh, it's the classical era now. <laughs> like that's yeah. not a thing. But so I've liked, I really appreciate when profs acknowledge that it's a flawed system, mm-hmm. like just the era system itself. But then there's also the other like added complication of the, the canon itself being a little bit eh. Yeah, I mean... Like, I understand that it's easier for students to learn if they're given, like, a narrative of eras and certain specific composers to look to, but we have to be taught to go beyond that, I think, Mm -hmm. and look into, I don't know, look beyond the bounds of that canon that's been set for us already. Yeah, that's actually a good point. It's, um, I find that, I don't know, there's, like, specific writers or specific composers or artists that you're always taught in any of these like basic intro classes or um, kind of expected to carry on if you're going further into theory, Um, Mm -hmm. let's say for media theory, for example. And it's like they have their specific canon of who you should read, but they don't teach you the skills or they don't give you more resources of how to expand. Oh, if you like so-and-so's theory, here are some other people. And it's not like they Mm -hmm. have to, like professors are expected to hold your hand. Um, Yeah. And kind of, like, guide you through everything, because they shouldn't. Uh, They have a lot more better things to do with their time. But (laughs) it's not like we're taught to go out and we're not given that further reading list of, like, oh, you can look up this, this, this. It's like you have to go out and do it yourself. And I feel like Mm -hmm. the way that school teaches you, it's like you have to work within the framework that we give you, and you can't stray outside of it. So you mm-hmm. have to cite your resources and someone has to have said something that's simil- that backs up what you want to say in order for you to be able to say it and in order for it to be a valid claim. And like academia, essay writing structures, all that kind of things, it boxes you into a certain type of thinking. And I think that's also very mm-hmm. damaging so much that it is um, enlightening to be able to read the works of art and to be able to get, be given the context of um, what led to 
the change of the romantic era and like what defines the romantic era and i think it's like great to know all those different features but Mm -hmm. you also have to know that there were people who weren't doing that stuff at the time it's not like everyone was only working um writing like romantic stuff Mm -hmm. uh driven by emotion at the time it's like there were probably other people who were writing just regular things that worked for them but that just didn't become popular because that wasn't the style at the time it's like style everything is always changing and so to i forgot where i was going with this (laughs) but i think like just like the idea of like reducing everything down i guess is that yeah and i think it's great to be able to be given that context and i think that's one thing that i value english class for because it it helps you give it helps give you the context especially if you're someone who living in the 21st century who is sitting down to read Jane Austen books for the first time or uh, Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. Um, Emily? I think that one's Emily. Yeah, that one's Charlotte's Jane Eyre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Wuthering Heights by uh, Emily Bronte. Um, You kind of have to know what the context was like, what the culture was like, in order to be Mm -hmm. able to fully appreciate and understand. And that's one thing that I never did when i was younger so when i would read these books i'd be like it's too difficult it's too complicated i don't understand what's going on because i was never given that context and so academia is really good for helping you provide that and helping you understand the value of it but it almost restricts your level of thinking as well because you're given or you're told what you're supposed to know and what you're supposed to take from something versus Mm -hmm. coming to organic conclusions yourself and making opinions of or having opinions of whether or not you like or dislike this thing for the specific feature yeah and and it becomes like if you're in the world of academia like we were saying before because it's almost like got this religious element to it it's like Mm -hmm. you can't have your own opinion you almost can't criticize certain established like canonized artists because they're considered the standard and that kind of really alters your thinking you're no longer thinking about it in terms of whether it's actually moving to you or whether you get anything from it and you're thinking about it just like oh well this people have decided this is important so I guess I have to go along with that yeah and I think um for especially when you walk into a museum we were talking about this earlier uh Mm -hmm. let's take Mona Lisa for example when you go to the the Louvre um (laughs) Francais I was like, okay, this sounds pretentious, but I have seen the Mona Lisa, but it was really difficult to see because the entire room that I went to was completely packed with people. Okay, me too, yeah. And it was like impossible to be able to go up and see it at the front. And so I'd be standing at the back of the room, like with my camera, with my power, like Canon PowerShot (laughs) camera, just like flashing, taking pictures of it. But like the pictures wouldn't come out well because the flash was flashing against the the glass. It was just impossible to go see it, but... We've all seen replicas of the Mona Lisa. We know what it looks like. I know. But with what, that kind of... Yeah, sorry. Well, it's just like, yeah, what makes it so valuable? Is it the fact that it was painted by Leonardo da Vinci? Was it the fact that her eyes follow you wherever you go, that she has no eyebrows? Is it the fact <laughs> that it got stolen multiple times and recovered yeah. all throughout yeah. history? Like, what is the value of it other than... Or historically, other than the fact that it's the Mona Lisa. Yeah, I know. That's the real question. Like, do all of these things that have been canonized necessarily have some sort of inherent value Mm -hmm. that, like, we have to really... We'll understand art or life better if we understand those works or if we, like, 
see them or whatever like to me I felt like I don't know if I would say I was moved by seeing the Mona Lisa but it was really exciting to me but I didn't know if that was just because of its kind of aura of importance Mm -hmm. in the art world or whether it was actually there's actually something really special about it I mean to be honest it's pretty small and like you said (laughs) there was a huge crowd of people (laughs) taking pictures so I couldn't really tell how I felt about it and it almost takes away from your experience of like You've been waiting for this moment for however many years. You hear about it so often, and yet mm-hmm. when you actually get to see it, it, you don't get to appreciate it for what it is and make your own opinion about it yeah. or to have your own effect about it because everyone knows about it, because it's so renowned and everyone's just trying to go up and taking, uh, t- and taking, I can't speak. Everyone's trying to go up and take a picture of it. And mm-hmm. it's just unfortunate. And like, I, I don't want to hate on the canon because I think it's still important we still should have these people that we've read for a long time. They obviously have brought value to many people um, within and with um, and not in academia itself. Like they're just considered classics. They're considered the best of their times. It's just we need to be able to open it up and kind of like, yeah. I guess, be more critical of what it is that we're putting into the canon. Mm-hmm. I th- yeah. And I don't know. And just don't don't focus on it as like the only don't just I guess think that once you've read all of the works of literature that are like considered to be (laughs) canon or whatever that's the thing there's no defined list Mm -hmm. it's not like Joseph Cannon like invented the canon and like we can go to him and be like okay you know what I mean like hey so um, I don't know why I think Joseph but (laughs) (laughs) it's like give me the list of the top 100 books that I should read and I'll yeah. know everything about the universe. I'll hit enlightenment and supersede this physical <laughs> world. Like <laughs> It'll be the answer to life's mysteries. Yes. That's, you'll finally figure out what the meaning of life is once you've re- read and understood the history of all of these artists and writers and composers and whatnot. <laughs> yeah like there's something beyond that like it i think there's use in if you want to learn about a certain era or a certain author or something like Mm -hmm. that probably reading their book that's considered their great work or whatever will help you out (laughs) to Mm -hmm. understand things a little better but i don't like the idea that you i feel like i have listened to certain things or something like that and just not or or looked at a piece of art and just not quite gotten what was so special about it. And I don't think that that should be a shameful thing. Mm-hmm. I think that we should all have our own experiences of art. If we don't find it exciting, mm-hmm. that shouldn't be a bad thing just because it's considered so important. Yeah, definitely. Um, I kind of just wanted to bring up this last idea that I had because the whole concept of the canon and the discussion around it kind of ties into the concepts of high and low culture and the debates that we have with that. And that's a whole like other topic that we could talk about. But generally, mm-hmm. I feel like we all have our own personal ideas of what is um, exemplary or like superior in our minds of like whatever field it is, whether it's music, classical music, pop music, country music, like we have our standards of what we like or what we think is like the best in our minds. Um, Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's like, because we have so much access to art and entertainment nowadays, 
we're all able to build our own personal canons, but there also mm-hmm. becomes a lot of debate of like what should and shouldn't be considered the best movie, for example. Like for cinephiles, mm-hmm. they always have a list of like the top directors or the top films that you should watch to be able to fully understand what the study of film theory is actually mm-hmm. about. And you have to be able to you have to have you you have to have watched all of those films to be able to say oh, I'm a true cinephile. Or uh, you had Mm -hmm. to have, even in literature, like you had to have read all of these specific authors to say that you are well-read. And if you Mm -hmm. haven't, then you're trash. Like, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's like an invitation for people to like get pretentious and get up on a high horse. Yeah, and it's like, it doesn't even exist between like class anymore. It's not the bourgeoisie versus the proletariat anymore. It's all of us working class uh, citizens or like middle class citizens or even lower class, like we all have access to this now so we can all say what we like and what we don't, what we don't like about things. But this leads to so many arguments online about um, what is like if a person is like a simpleton for for watching or for like reading romances versus um, reading things for the romantic era. Mm-hmm. let's say <laughs> um i feel like this is going to be a theme in our podcast like it i feel like we talked about it in our guilty pleasure episode like just just enjoy what you enjoy yeah exactly it's like you don't have to take the opinions i mean it's great to if you're able to read and take value from what works are in the canon if you're able to appreciate it for what it is but you also don't have to chide yourself and i, I need to tell myself this that you don't have to chide yourself if you like something that is stereotypically less quality or lower quality than what the canon says is Mm -hmm. exemplary yeah i feel like we'll yeah in some ways i feel like we'll never know how exactly a canon gets established but Mm -hmm. i think just read what you want to read and if you don't (laughs) like something that's considered high art don't feel badly about it because there's no objectivity in art (laughs) like you can't you can't say definitively whether something is good or bad or whether it should move you or not. So, mm-hmm. and I think the whole thing about art is that it puts into physical, like into a tangible thing, your emotions, the meaning of life, like these philosophical things that we all have a difficult time putting into words or putting into visual images. Artists are kind of able to capture that in a way and show it off to the world and kind of elicit that same reaction so that people can relate to to that specific piece of art. And so if it elicits a reaction in you, then definitely take that for for granted because that's amazing. And if it doesn't, then it's okay. You can continue going on with your life. Don't feel badly. Don't feel like you're missing out on something. Mm -hmm. And I definitely need to tell myself that because I don't want to force myself to read a whole bunch of stuff that I don't want to read. Yeah, you don't have to, like, muscle your way through, like, I don't know, a Tolstoy novel or something. Oh, God. I kind <laughs> of want to read it, but I don't told know. I, I mean, this is a random tangent. I think it was Anna Karenina. My mom was saying how she liked the Korean translation of Anna Karenina better than the English one. Interesting. Um, because it just captured the emotion better in the Korean mm. version. So, you'd like, of course, you can always... Um, the best way to read a text that's translated is to be able to just read it in its original language but most people don't have that affordance and so um 
I'm not about to learn Russian, so that I can tell a story. <laughs> I was like, should we segue into the topic of our next episode? Sure. Yeah, that that set itself up pretty well. So I did actually. Um, yeah. So that concludes our uh, discussion on canons and yeah. what our personal opinions are on them. I think. Yeah. Overall. I mean, Oh, sorry. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I'm trying to say. I was going to say, if you're new to this podcast, like, we don't really ever come to hard conclusions. We just like talking about stuff like this. Yeah. So, Most of our know. conversations... The is flawed, <laughs> is the conclusion, probably. If there Most is of our conversations bring up questions, and then we don't answer them. We bring so. up so many more questions than we actually come up with, like, answers for. So. Yeah. But I think that's, that's just the way it is. a part of life. Just, you'll never get the answers to everything. I love just open discussion and just, like, putting out theories and stuff, mm-hmm. so. It just opens your mind up to so many things, too. Like, you bring up questions to things that you never even thought of before until you talk about it. Exactly. And you're like, huh, maybe I'll consider this going forward. Or I'll do some more research on it. Exactly. But, yeah. So, next week, we decided to take on a little lighter topic. <laughs> yeah, um, just a di- different from what we have been talking about, I guess. Yeah. And just discuss uh, language learning and our love of languages. Yeah, so stay tuned for that. Uh, thanks for listening, and we shall see you in the next episode. Not see you. We you shall. We'll see you, but not see you in the next episode. You know what we mean. Yeah. <laughs> bye. Okay, bye. <laughs> and fade out. <laughs> <laughs>